Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the Network, and host of this Meet the Author podcast. In this fourth podcast episode, we are delighted to have Ben Mulvey from the Education University of Hong Kong with us to discuss his latest research on international student mobility between Africa and China. Hello, Ben. It's really nice to have you with us, the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities, today to talk about your research. Can you briefly introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hello. So yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Ben Mulvey. I'm a PhD uh, student at the moment at the Education University of Hong Kong, uh, which is like a small university uh, in Hong Kong. It used to be the Institute of Education, but they changed the name. Um, so my PhD project is on international students in China um, who are from Sub-Saharan Africa. And then uh, generally I'm interested in like international student mobility and uh, social class reproduction and also post-colonial theory um, and applying post-colonial theory to like um, student mobility between different locations in the, in the global south. Um, and I'm also working on another project which is also to do with like Bourdieu and social class um, but it's about uh, working class students in the UK but, but I think we're focused on uh, the Chinese educational mobilities today. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. Um, this leads nicely to my next question. Can you tell us what motivated you to conduct you know, this piece of research on international student mobility between Africa and China? Yeah, so basically like I was doing my master's degree uh, in the UK uh, in education and international development. Um, but I'd also just come back from living in China uh, for a year in, in Wuhan. Um, and then when I was doing that course, I kind of, because I'd just been in China, I was thinking about, uh, like what, like China and Africa and development, cause we're talking about a lot about Africa and international development, but I knew that, uh, China was like a, a, a donor country and there was quite a lot of higher education aid, but like nobody really knew about it on the course that I was doing. So I thought it'd be an interesting topic to write my master's dissertation on. Um, and I also had like kind of knew a lot of students uh, and had seen a lot of students around from Africa and China and I thought that would be like an interesting uh, topic so then yeah I wrote my, my master's thesis on that and then it kind of like went from there and it's kind of transformed uh, into the project that I'm doing now from, from originally being in China then, then my master's course yeah. Oh that sounds fascinating so you were in Wuhan for a year yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So can you speak some Chinese by now? Yeah, like a little bit. Uh, well, well like, reason, like reasonably well, like not totally fluent or anything like that, but, but mm. kind of, yeah, yeah. That's nice, that's nice. So what are the key findings or messages of your recent articles published in higher education policy and in higher education? Yeah, so the first one that you mentioned, higher education policy, um, that was like an article that I wrote very early on in my PhD and it's not exactly related to my PhD project but it's obviously related um, and the, the topic is uh, Ugandan students in Chinese universities or Ugandan graduates of Chinese universities mm. um, who return home to Uganda and it was focused on the public diplomacy mm. uh, aspect um, mm. 
because the, the kind of uh, the rationale that you see in a lot of the policy documents for uh, China's recruitment of international students, it's all to do with uh, public diplomacy, soft power, uh, China's influence in the world. So I thought it would be interesting just to look at, because there's not been many, there's been a few studies on uh, African students and international students generally, mm. um, but there hadn't really been much on uh, graduates. And obviously if you're looking at soft power, it's, it's all about the, the influence that the students have on, in, on uh, international relations, bilateral relations in, in the future. Um, so um, I just looked at the motivations of those students who were originally going to China, the experiences, and then what they did after their graduation. Um, and just wanted to find out, uh, based on kind of what we already understand about the concept of soft power or public diplomacy, mm. um, whether or, or what are the mechanisms through which it might be working or not working mm. from the perspective of the Chinese government in the context of Uganda? Because Uganda is a really important kind of uh, like uh, ally of, of China in, in East Africa. Mm. Um, so then basically I found that the students' views were quite mixed. Um, so on one hand, they were kind of, they felt, or some, most of the students that I spoke to felt kind of a little bit socially alienated in China. Like obviously the cultural difference is huge. Uh, and that was mostly outside of the university that they said in, like they're actually quite positive about in, in university and their teachers or lecturers um, and their relationship with like staff in the university was actually quite good. Mm. Um, but then they also felt like most of them felt they were kind of discriminated against. Um, and I think that that obviously, that's really obvious that that would work against soft power because positive attitudes are, you know, we, that's one of the things that we know is important mm. in terms of uh, what students will do afterwards in terms of the, like if they'll do anything to kind of forward the relation Ship between the host country and uh, mm. their home country. So, sure. mm. yeah, then, but then what I found interesting is that they're also like a little bit skeptical about like China's involvement in Uganda, generally speaking. Mm. Um, but then in the end, they actually all were, were continuing to kind of have some kind of like ties to, um, to China. A lot of them were working as translators because that's one of the jobs that's like really easy for them to get when they're back home because there's a huge demand mm. uh, for uh, things like translator Chinese uh, to like local languages and to English mm. because there's so obviously so few people in, in Uganda who can speak Chinese well and most of these guys could. Um, so actually even though they didn't necessarily have like massively positive views towards China. They were still um, kind of, you could argue that they're working in the interests of, of uh, China's like, public diplomacy efforts because they're all working with Chinese businesses and forwarding Chinese business interests in, in the region as well. Um, so basically the, the conclusion of that article was that the it's just hard to predict what students are going to do. You can't say they'll, they'll go to China, they'll definitely have positive attitudes. But then again, you can't say if they have negative attitudes, then they won't still work in the interest in, of the host country in, in some way. And that kind of applies to all countries that have this rationale. So like the UK kind of, that's in some policy documents in the UK, they also have that rationale. So it would also apply to other contexts like the UK as well. Mm. Um, yeah, then the second article uh, was kind of, it was about, um, 
It's about conceptualizing, it's, right? International students. Yeah, like conceptualizing the, the discourse of, of student mobility um, and like the way that African students and their home countries are represented in, in Chinese uh, like policy documents, policy texts, things uh, that come from the Chinese government. Um, so uh, I found, like, I came across this concept of uh, semi-peripheral post-coloniality. Mm. Um, and I think it captured quite well, like, China's position in mm. the world and then mm. how its position within the world affects the, its discourse uh, towards post-colonial and also peripheral countries, which that definition would apply to most countries in Africa. Mm. Um, so with like, like the existing post-colonial theory, uh, it's kind of quite hard to explain China's position mm. um, because it's become like relative to some other countries in the global south, like quite powerful in recent years. So, and a lot of this, or my argument was that a lot of this post-colonial theory kind of uh, reproduces a West and then everybody else like binary that doesn't necessarily work when you're talking about China. And mm. other countries. Sure. So, yeah. So then, um, yeah, I looked at the the discourse in some of these documents, um, and I just argued that uh, the discourse around African students reflects their like ambiguous position, like they're in the semi-periphery, so mm. they're kind of subjugated by the the core mm. of powerful Western countries, but also uh, have a kind of almost like a sense of superiority over like some uh, peripheral countries. Um, so then in the discourse, there's like, there's two kind of contradictory discourses, um, that I picked up on. So one that's like anti, you could say like anti-neo-imperialist and like an ethical aid policy, mm. um, which is, you know, all about win-win, um, and like civilizational dialogue, uh, and like two-way exchange. But then there's also another contradictory dialogue, uh, discourse of, uh, kind of paternalism and like a, a little bit of a sense of civilizational superiority um, which reproduces the discourse that's present in the West and mm. is used towards countries outside of the West. So, so yeah. That sounds fascinating and it's really important work because uh, I think as uh, international education or international student mobility uh, researchers in, in the field, they, they have been sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of trying to grapple with, you know, how we perceive China, yeah. you know, uh, and in, engaging like China's relative relations to the West, to the developing countries, yeah. you know, and I think your work sort of uh, sits at this very important intersection. You know, yeah, and, yeah it's, it's a really fascinating work. So when you mm. were uh, conducting this uh, piece of research, was there any interesting anecdotes that you can share with us? Yeah, well, basically, I, I think the best probably thing to talk about is um, when I was doing my fieldwork for my PhD, which this is like nothing of this bit of fieldwork has been published yet, but mm. basically, um, so I was looking to do my fieldwork around uh, late February and early March, just, mm. it's just after Chinese New Year. Mm. Um, so yeah, I had a couple of friends in, in Wuhan and mm. also there's a, one of uh, a professor here at EDU had like put me in touch with a, somebody else in Wuhan. So I thought that would be a great starting point for my fieldwork. Mm -hmm. um, so I was planning a visit to Wuhan. I got my visa and uh, was just about to book the flights just before Chinese New Year. 
Mm. Um, and that was like just around the time uh, when like the coronavirus was like, the situation was kind of becoming clear. Mm. Um, then yeah, one of my friends in Wuhan was, was just, just said to me, maybe don't book the flights yet because we don't know what's going on. Mm. Um, and then I didn't book the flights. And then it came out that, yeah, the whole place was going to, like the whole city of Wuhan was, was going to be locked down. Nobody was allowed to leave. So mm. yeah, I, I kind of dodged a bullet there. But then that's kind of made my fieldwork really, really difficult. Um, mm. So then I had to switch to like doing all my interviews online because I just couldn't go to China at all. Um, so I managed to like um, interview a lot of students over Skype or through WeChat video calls. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I had a lot of help from some really, really helpful uh, PhD students in Wuhan and also in, in Zhejiang. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also a couple of other places. And they just, uh, they were people that I already knew and they helped me put, put me in touch with loads of other students. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really lucky that I was able to like carry on with my fieldwork despite yeah. everything. Wow, but it's it's such a huge sort of shock for you, I can imagine, right? Yeah, when I yeah when I, I was just like, oh god, what am I gonna do? Like, yeah, yeah. But then it kind of turned out all right in the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a uh, yeah. I, I and I think I, I'm really sympathetic because I think there are also a lot of other PhD uh, researchers whose view was uh, ha- has been likewise uh, disrupted to a, yeah, a very uh, so. yeah uh, a good degree. Yeah. Wow, but well done, you know, on sort of a switching very swiftly to, to you know, yeah. online sort of interviews, yeah? yeah. Um, so, I know many of our members are interested in the publication process of articles. So, can you share with us how you went about writing these articles, you know, especially as a PhD student who is relatively early in your PhD career? Mm-hmm. And what were the highlights or challenges of getting these public, uh, articles published? Yeah, so it was... Obviously, it was quite difficult getting these two articles published. Um, the first one is a special issue, which I was quite lucky that I went to a, a conference in Hong Kong and, and there was a special issue on the back of that conference and I was able to, to publish it through that. Um, but obviously, it's still quite difficult. Um, then, yeah, so the, the first article was just something like I did the research quite quickly and, and wrote it up while I was still doing my research methods classes in the first part of my PhD. Mm. Um, but then with my thesis, uh, mm. so yeah, the first kind of, uh, the, the, if I was to give any like kind of advice about that about to people who's interested, it would be like, look for special issues. But um, uh, with my thesis, uh, I'm trying to just, I was trying to think of each chapter as like self-contained. Um, mm so that it could become an article by itself. So the second one that I published was like, um, it, it was the, what, like the introductory chapter of uh, my thesis, or mm. like the context chapter. So then I was just able to like, sort of reduce it down and, and get the basic idea down in the form of an article. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, when I'm thinking about the articles, uh, the chapters in that way from the beginning it makes it a bit easier to see how they can become articles at the end so i think mm. that that's like some advice that somebody gave me and i think i think that worked um yeah. and then as for challenges like when you sub- obviously there's the time challenge like when you're doing a phd especially if you're in like the uk or also in hong kong you've got three years so i think 
maybe it's actually best not to think too much about it uh, yeah. and just try and get one or two articles out and that's enough. Um, but some people, especially in Hong Kong, they're really focused on publishing. So some students will do like six or seven, which is like a little bit, seems a little bit crazy, but if they can do it, then. then so six or seven articles. Yeah, like some of the students that I know, like, like they just totally focused on publishing as much as possible. So mm. the, in Hong Kong, there's like, they massively focus on publishing, which I think is not really a good thing. But um, mm. yeah, and then the yeah, challenges as well is like reviewer comments, which can be really tricky and either you don't understand them or you don't agree with them. Mm. So you have to kind of spend a lot of time thinking about how to deal with them. Um, so yeah, in those cases where I didn't really agree, you you have to kind of make a decision whether to argue with them mm. or re like kind of reason it or just change the article in a way that you don't really want to. So that's really tricky on working out how to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So did you get help, you know, in this process? Uh, oh, in public terms of publishing. Yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah. Like I, well, I asked, some of my friends for advice who'd already uh, published. And mm. then, uh, yeah, my supervisors always read through it and kind of give me some, some pointers um, mm. on what I can do. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's like different, different places that I, I got help from as well. That's excellent, yeah, yeah. So what are your plans or next steps for this research project? Apparently you have, yeah. you have to finish your PhD, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the plan is to hopefully just finish. That's like about as, with everything that's going on, that's about as sort of far as I can plan ahead at the moment. Um, so yeah, I'm still like conducting interviews for uh, my PhD and like some really interesting things are coming up, which I hope I'll be able to get sort of down in the form of a chapter and then an article soon. And then I also really want to actually go to China and spend some time doing proper field work um and yeah hopefully from hong kong that that there's a chance that that might be possible like soonish so um yeah it'd be really good to go to wuhan or even like guangzhou somewhere where i, where I can um finish my field work um and then yeah after my phd there's like lots of other things i'd like to research so hopefully yeah yeah, sounds really exciting, and you are you are working on a really important, uh, you know, sort of uh, area, you know, the China Africa, um, yeah, sort of, uh, international uh, edu education mobility uh, mm -hmm. area, which is really quite important and, and a bit under researched, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's not much on it at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, is there anything else that you want to share with us today, Ben? Um, not in particular um i think i've basically like covered uh everything there oh thank you so much ben you know your sharing is really insightful and especially uh insightful for our phd uh you know researchers who are our network members in terms of getting published okay yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you very Thanks much for having me yeah yeah i really appreciate it thank, thank you, you. We would like to thank Ben for his insightful sharing and wish him a great journey to completing his PhD research on such an important research project. Thank you, Ben.